from England. So if you want to write culture shock, I can tell you a little bit about that. But I spent seven years in Lubbock, and I loved Lubbock. I loved my time there. And my wife and our family, we make our home in Kentucky these days, in Lexington. We've been there 10 years. We hope to die there. We love that city. And we love what God is doing in our midst. But I am grateful for Ryan's invitation to be with you all this morning to talk about my favorite thing, which is the big story I believe the Bible is telling, and which I attempted to tell in my first book, The Story of God, The Story of Us. And Ryan may not remember this, but my publisher were on me because I had not given them a subtitle for the book, and the deadline was coming for that to happen. And I was sitting with Ryan in a coffee shop, of course, in Boone, North Carolina, and the publisher called and said, we need the subtitle today. So Ryan and I brainstormed, came up with a subtitle. I don't know if you even remember that, but that was 10 years ago, and uh, that book has taken me all over the place, uh, and today it's brought me here to Sweetwater. So I'm going to attempt to tell the big story I think the Bible is telling from the first page to the last page in about 20 minutes. Uh, But before we get to that story, I have a question about another story for you. How many of you have ever seen the movie Mary Poppins? Has anybody never seen Mary Poppins? All right. Usually there's at least one hand, but not not today. Well, how many of you have seen the trailer for Mary Poppins? Not so many of you, I suspect. So we're going to just take a moment to watch that now. Does the trailer for the movie actually prepare you for the movie you're going to watch? No. Is, is Mary Poppins a horror movie? No. But would you agree that every single scene in that trailer came from the movie? It's just that it was put together, strung together in a certain way to tell a very different story than the one that Mary Poppins actually tells. My question for us to consider this morning is, is it just possible that we can do that with the Bible? that we can pull verses out of here and there and string them together in such a way that we make the Bible tell a very different story than the one that the Bible is actually telling. I believe, I'll answer my own question, that that is true, that we do that more often than we like to admit. And uh, certainly my experience growing up in England was along those lines. Uh, I do not come from a family of churchgoers. On my mother's or my father's side, no one went to church, but my best friend in elementary school did. So I grew up in the church. Uh, I grew up at uh, Medaway Brethren Chapel, 
And every Sunday night, we heard the gospel service. Whether we needed it or not, we got it. And the gospel that I grew up with, the big story that that church told me the Bible was telling was this, is that there is a problem, and the problem is me, especially when I was a teenager, apparently. Um, but really the problem is my sin, that because I was a sinner and God is holy, uh, I cannot be with God. And when I die, I will go to hell, which is the punishment that my sin deserves. That was the bad news in the story. The good news was it didn't have to end up that way because Jesus died on the cross in my place, took the punishment that my sins deserve. And if I believed that and invited Jesus into my heart, then I wouldn't go to hell, but I would go to heaven to be with him forevermore. That was the gospel. Now, that may be a very shortened version of it, but that's pretty much the summation of the gospel I heard every Sunday night in the gospel service. It might be one that you're familiar with. It might be one that you've told other people. It might be one that you've drawn on an illustration and a napkin in a restaurant to explain that to people or maybe reduced it to the four spiritual laws. Here's what strikes me about that way of telling the story uh, from my experience growing up is that it is a story that is primarily rooted in fear, the fear of going to hell. And while fear may be a powerful short-term motivator to change behavior, Uh, In my experience, at least, fear rarely leads to long-term transformation. And the truth is, for most of my family and friends back in England, that version of the story is not compelling at all. That also may be true for some of us here today and some of our own family and friends. And let's face it, that version of the story is some pretty serious cliff notes. I mean, my Bible is about 1,500 pages long. And yet somehow I can reduce this to four spiritual laws or an illustration I can draw on a napkin in a restaurant with a friend. Um, So my question is, did God need an editor? Like, is there all this kind of stuff in here that we really didn't need to know if if the core of it is what I just said? I believe that that story, as true as it is, is inadequate compared to the wealth of the story that we actually find in the Bible. And the clue is right there in the first words of the New Testament. Not the inspired words, but the first words printed on the page, which is this, the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to John. What if the gospel is not a small collection of abstract theological ideas that we have to believe in. But rather, the gospel is the story of Jesus, which is to be lived out. That's my conviction. And that is what has changed the course of my life about 20 years ago, when I finally heard a very different story than the one that I had grown up with. Three other things strike me about that way of telling the story. One, when we tell the story that way, we actually miss the beginning of the story in the Bible because we begin typically in Genesis chapter 3 with sin and miss the beginning of the story, Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. And we typically end the story in heaven. So we miss the end of the story in the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible, which talks about the new earth. And thirdly, when we tell the story that way, we're really doing so because of our culture. 
which is one of radical individualism. So the story is about me and my sin and my need for a personal savior. I'm at the center of that story and I want God to enter the drama of my story rather than recognizing that it is really God's story. God is and always has been center stage. And our glory as human beings is that we get to enter that story just for a moment as it unfolds. So the question is, is there a way of telling the story of God that is not rooted in fear and individualism? A story that everyone, no matter what they believe right now, can somehow find their way into. I believe that is exactly the kind of story that the Bible is actually telling. And so I want to take us on a whirlwind tour of the Bible this morning, like I said, in about the next 20 minutes. And there's all kinds of ways we could get into the story of God, but I'm going to do so this morning through something that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, We find about halfway into his long letter to that struggling group of Christians there in chapter 8. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 18. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth till now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, for the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why do you hope for what you've already seen? But if we hope for what we have not seen yet, with perseverance, let us wait eagerly for that. The whole of creation groans. Not only that, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. We wait eagerly our adoption for the redemption of our bodies. What on earth is Paul talking about? Let me tell you a story. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke and there was life. God spoke and there was a world where all of God's good creation could flourish. God made us, humanity, male and female, in the image of God. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth, and be the agents of my sovereign reign over the rest of creation. 
God gave us vegetables and fruit for food. God also gave that to the birds and the animals. And our role as human beings was to ensure that the world that God created and the world that God loved would remain a place where all of life could flourish. We were given the vocation, the work of tilling and keeping the soil to tend and encourage its fertility, to ensure that there would always be enough food for every living creature. Life in the garden was good. It was very good. Until. Until the serpent came and tempted us to doubt the goodness of God. Tempted us to become like God. To begin to think of ourselves as big deals. And so we ignored the abundance of the garden. And instead we reached for the one fruit that was not ours to eat. And as we bit into that fruit, and as the juice ran down our chin, great cracks, great fissures opened up in the harmony of the garden. Sin appeared in God's good creation, and a fourfold alienation began, for we are alienated. We are alienated from God. We are alienated from each other. We are alienated from the rest of the creation. We are alienated from ourselves. And all of these divisions distort God's purposes for creation. And they cry out for healing and for reconciliation because the whole of creation groans. Well, we are sent into exile, east of Eden, banished from the garden and from access to the tree of life. And there those divisions only magnify. Brother, killing brother. Violence enters the story for the first time until the earth is filled with violence because of us. A great flood offers the chance to start again, although now the animals become food for us and they learn to fear us because the whole of creation groans. But we do not learn. We still hear the voice of the serpent. We still want to be big deals. And so instead of filling the earth, instead we gather in one place on the plain of Shinar, there to build a city and a tower that will reach into the heavens and make a name for ourselves. But God comes down to thwart our plans and scatters us across the earth. However, God will not abandon us to our fate to live with these divisions forever. For God spoke, saying to Abraham, I will give you land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. God promises Abraham, what tower builders crave. And then God says, And in you and your family, Abraham, all 
the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes a people for God's self. A people who will be the agents of God's work of reconciliation, of healing the creation. But Abraham was powerless to do this himself. He and Sarah were childless. Have no doubt, this was God's work to do. But through Abraham and Sarah's willingness to be obedient, to do what God asked them. And so about a year later, along comes the miraculous gift of Isaac. And then Jacob, who will become Israel. And then Joseph. And Joseph gets us down into Egypt. Well, centuries pass. Successive dynasties become very big deals in Egypt. The pharaohs make a name for themselves, for sure. But at the expense of just about everybody else in Egypt, as is usually the case, including the descendants of Abraham, who now find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God spoke, saying to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people. I am aware of their suffering. And so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land of slavery and into a good and spacious land, overflowing with milk and honey. And God does just that. God sets them free. And the exodus will come, become the defining, identity-shaping event for God's people Israel. Because the God of the story is the one who sets people free. Who liberates us from bondage to all that enslaves us. From all that intensifies the divisions that we live with. Whether those things are caused by other individuals by social structures, or by the addictions and compulsions that alienate us from ourselves, from each other, and from the very ground from which we were taken, humans from humans. Then, in the desert of Sinai, God spoke all these words, ten words, ten commandments, a transforming covenant, the very means by which God will transform people who have been enslaved into human beings. The very means by which we will learn what it means to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. Our neighbor, who we first encounter in the face of the slave, in the fourth of the ten words, the one on keeping Sabbath, the day when everyone gets to rest. Even our livestock. And in the law are also provision for caring for the land that God has given us. For caring for the vulnerable poor who live amongst us. And then there is the year of Jubilee. The Sabbath of Sabbath years. The cosmic reset button when all debt is forgiven so that no one can accumulate property and wealth. No one can become big deals because of other people's misfortune or just their poor choices. And then God came down once more to dwell in their midst, in the tabernacle, 
And as they kept this covenant with God, they would begin to bless all the peoples of the world by showing them what human beings were supposed to be. But they did not keep covenant with God. In time, they rejected God as being king over them, instead demanding their own king so they could be like the other nations. They wanted their own big deal who would lead them into battle. But just about every one of their big deals would lead them to break covenant with God. Only one, King Uzziah, loved the soil. But when he built his army, he too became proud, switching from humus to hubris. He too broke covenant with God. And so, after centuries of speaking through the prophets, calling the people back to covenant faithfulness, wooing them back to God's self, after centuries of being ignored, God finally sent God's people into exile once more, this time to Babylon, as judgment for breaking the covenant they had made with God, and to give the land the Sabbath rest they had never provided for it, for the whole of creation groans. But then God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to the people in exile, saying, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare lies your welfare. Be a blessing, even now, even here, even to your enemies. Well, after 70 years, they return from exile back to the land of promise, but they are a broken people. And for five long centuries, they find themselves under the boot of one empire after another, and they wait for God to speak again. They wait for God to act, to deliver them from their enemies. They wait for a new exodus, but only silence. Then God spoke. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. My friends, God keeps covenant with us, even when we will not keep covenant with God. And so God assumes our problem as God's own and becomes one of us to do for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. And Thirty years later, on the Sabbath day, the Word announces what he has come to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God has anointed me to preach good news, the gospel to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. A new exodus is at hand. Well, the word, Jesus of Nazareth, calls twelve disciples, God's 
once more living in the midst of God's people, Israel. And a people begin to form around Jesus. But it's the wrong people. It's the poor of Israel. It is the sinners of Israel. The people who the big deals in Israel say are the very problem with Israel. And so Jesus upsets the big deals. And after three years of proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God, which is coming on earth as it is in heaven, right in front of them, after three years of demonstrating the kingdom by healing people, by delivering people from the demonic, even by raising people from the dead, after embodying a very different story from all the other stories we tell about what life is all about, the big deals conspire together. And they stretch out Jesus' hands on a cross. And they put him to death for telling the story that we simply do not want to hear. And so on the sixth day of the week, Pontius Pilate displays a brutalized Jesus to the crowds and says, Behold, the man! For, unbeknownst to Pilate, here is the man. Here is the true human being. The one who has shown us what we were always created to be. The image bearer of God. God himself. And we killed him. But. And there is always a but. In the story of God. When Rome. Had done its worst to Jesus. When the religious establishment had done its worst to Jesus. When the serpent of old had done its worst to Jesus. And when we had done our worst to Jesus. God showed us once and for all that sin and violence and death do not have the last word. God does. And that word is always life. And so when Mary, the very first apostle, came to anoint Jesus' body for burial instead of a corpse, she finds the resurrected Jesus now alive. And who did she mistake him for? The gardener. Of course. Because here, in a garden, on the first day of the week, the new creation begins. Jesus, the second Adam, lives as the first fruits of resurrection. It is the beginning of the end of exile, and the cry goes out to all humanity, Come home. All that alienates us, all the divisions we live with, can now finally begin to be healed. All that separates us can now finally begin to be reconciled. While Jesus, God the Son, the resurrected human being, ascends into the realm of heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father in order that they might send God the Holy Spirit to continue the work of reconciliation. And on the day of Pentecost, 
What happened on the plains of Shinar all those years ago is reversed because God spoke. This time in the languages of every tribe and tongue gathered there in Jerusalem. And once more God comes down to tabernacle in the midst of God's people who now begin to embody that story together, showing, sharing all that they have so there was not a person in need among them. Everybody flourished until until the wrong people showed up again. This time it was the Gentiles. And God has to show the church time and time and time again that God wants a people for God's self, a people formed from all the peoples of the earth, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity. But, and there is always a but in our story too. 2,000 years later, those divisions are still with us. We are still living out the narratives of the big deals. Our world is still filled with violence. And the creation is still groaning. It's no wonder that so many of us want to hear a story about escaping this world one day and not the story of God healing this world and all that that implies for us as we continue to be sent out into that world as agents of God's sovereign work, the work of new creation, the work of reconciliation, the work of peacemaking. But God is still speaking. And Paul exhorts us, if we wait for what we have not seen yet, let's wait with perseverance for that. And what have we not seen yet? What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the return of the King. We are waiting for Jesus. For the day when the new creation will finally come in all its fullness. For the day when we will finally return from exile and will gather as one people around the tree of life once more, whose leaves are now for the healing of the nations. There to live in the new creation on the new earth forever. For the one who sits on the throne spoke, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. That, my friends, is the story of God, the story of us. That is a story worth telling and a story worth living. May we do so for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our families, for the sake of the world that God loves so much that he died for. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I am 
surrounded by the stories the world tells us, stories that are rooted in scarcity, that there is not enough, that we have to hold on to what is ours. Those stories are powerful. But the story of God is one of abundance, that there is enough for all. In the garden, there was enough for every creature. When they're in the wilderness, God provided manna, so much that they got sick at the sight of it. When God walked among us in the person of Jesus, he could feed 5,000 people on a hillside with a few loaves and fishes. The story that we are invited to make our home in is one of abundance. Every time we come to this table, we are invited to remember that story. This ridiculous story that we get this little piece of bread and this little sip of juice. And somehow in that, the mystery of all that God has done for us is wrapped up. Because there is not scarcity of grace, my friends. There is an abundance of grace for all of us. And when we come to this table, knowing full well all the ways we have lived out of the wrong story this week, all the ways we have wounded those we love the most, God comes to us, meets us here, ready to forgive us, and to give us the strength to go, not just to confess our sins to God, but to confess our sins to those we've hurt, to ask for their forgiveness, and enter into the joy of the abundant life of reconciliation that God promises us. So as we come to this table today, no matter how we come, may we find, maybe not even what we're looking for, may we find what we need as we come.